Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of Pole Position on History Hack. So we've got with us today Sam Napton, who is a lecturer in modern European history at UEA. She specialises in displacement in Central and Eastern Europe in the 20th century. Hi, Sam. Hi, yeah. Thanks for inviting me onto History Hack. I'm really excited about um, giving a little talk about my topics. I love this topic because it's something that I've been touching on recently in some of my research. And uh, funnily enough, um, my whole family's gone through this repatriation. But I want to throw something in before we do talk about repatriation because I actually got repatriated. And um, quick question for you: When was the last time Poles were repatriated? Oh, that is a very good question. I don't actually know the answer. <laughs> I think, if I'm not mistaken, in it was in the 40s theoretically. I think. Yeah, if talking about post-war repatriation, then I think the very latest would be would have been 1951. Uh, just before Germany brought in a homeless foreigners law. So it basically had ousted you from the camps if uh, you either repatriated or you stayed in Germany outside the displaced persons camps. Okay, well, there you go. That's the answer. That is the answer. Um, But I actually got repatriated because, you know, during the coronavirus thing, Poland actually sent planes around the world to repatriate citizens. Oh, right. So that is pretty awesome. But anyway. Yes, there's lots of new repatriation happening. Exactly. But moving on, tell us actually, what is repatriation? What does the actual word mean? Um, So all it is, uh, very simply, is it's just the return to your country of origin, essentially. So in relation to Polish displaced persons in the aftermath of the Second World War, it was meant to be a return of Polish DPs or displaced persons to Poland. That's all it was. So simplistically, I was returned back to Poland from England. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay, let's set the scene for this. Um, a lot of people know that the end of the war happened in May 1945 for most of Europe. Yeah. But uh, what was the situation for Poles in 1945? Because, you know, concentration camps were being liberated. I mean, the first was liberated mm-hmm. as early as July 1944. That was Majdanek. Um, But mm-hmm. there were still so many in concentration camps, prisoner of war camps, labour camps all various different types of camps scattered throughout Europe. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so it was only when, really in 1944, as you say, when um, some of the concentration camps and prisoner of war camps were liberated as allies were kind of like shifting their way through Germany, essentially. Um, And what they realised is that they came across this mass of people that was, you know, you might have liberated them from a camp, but now what happens? Especially if they're, um, you know, nutritionally lacking <laughs> I guess is the best word to put it and um, they're not clothed they need uh, medication that sort of thing so what the allies did and they called themselves the supreme headquarters 
Allied Expeditionary Force because they like these really complicated names. Um, and they use the acronym SHAFE, or the abbreviation, sorry, SHAFE, uh, to denote this. And in 44, when they were moving through Germany, they started setting up these different transit and assembly centers. So if they encountered people that they liberated or people who were just displaced and quite literally just wandering along the roads because they didn't know where they were going, they would shift them into these camps and just provide the immediate needs. So food, clothing, shelter, uh, DDT powder, so lots of medications. Um, For Poles in particular, the end of the war in May 1945, it was, by all accounts that I've read, it was celebrated. Um, There was a a sudden burst of euphoric sort of freedom. There was also confusion as to how they would get back home because many were in Western Germany. Um, so they were quite a long way from home and all the transport lines had been pretty decimated. However, um, and we can get into this in a little bit, there was something that happened over the summer of 1945 that made it a little bit impossible for a lot of them to return home. So Poland at the end of the war was facing having just undergone Soviet and Nazi uh, occupation. So a lot of the people had been displaced. There was 1.8 million, I think, Poles um, in Germany as a result of forced labour. Uh, there were others just scattered about. There was, of course, uh, those who served in the army, then under the Anders army or serving alongside the British. Yeah, they were scattered everywhere, everywhere but Poland, essentially. 1.8 million people. That's incredible. Yeah, it's insane. Right, so we've got another acronym coming in. <laughs> oh, God, I know. Sorry, so many acronyms. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one in there. Um, and please don't judge me. I mean, I only learned about this two years ago. Shame for me. <laughs> um, due to a, a, another lecturer who okay. educated me about the subject. But let's talk about UNRWA. Okay. And what role did they... Well, first of all, tell us what UNRWA is, what did they do, and what role they played in the repatriation of Poles. Okay, so UNRWA stands for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. And it was created in 1943, which was actually two years before the official United Nations was created. So it's kind of seen as the very first sort of embryonic um, United Nations organization. And it was a, so as the, the name denotes, they were meant to provide relief and rehabilitation. Uh, relief is relatively obvious, I guess. It's, you know, feeding people, clothing people, making sure that they're, they're fit and healthy. But rehabilitation was never fully defined, and this happens to be something that is becoming a subject of one of my books that's coming out. Um, But it's the fact that they never define what rehabilitation meant. Did that mean spiritually, uh, physically, mentally, culturally? Um, But what UNRWA actually ended up doing was basically making rehabilitation synonymous with repatriation, which in terms of the the allies and the occupiers um, in Germany in particular, it basically meant the return of the status quo. Um, so not really great for those DPs who didn't really want to return, um, but that was how the Allies kind of saw it. So UNRWA was made up of 44 nations in total, I should probably mention that. Each nation was to give 1% of its total national income to UNRWA, but because obviously different nations have different amounts of wealth, uh, the largest contributor ended up being the United States. I think the, their total contribution was something like 72% of UNRWA's entire financial um, shortfall. What seventy-two percent? That's a that's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a lot. The second highest was Britain, which was thirteen percent. So there's a vast difference. But because they were two the two largest contributors, what ended up happening was that they became basically the ones who ran the show, which is exactly what they were trying to avoid and what all the other countries wanted to avoid too. But because they put 
so much money in and a lot of the staff were American and British, it kind of ended up becoming this Anglo-American sort of thing. Um, there is a historian, I've forgotten the name now, but uh, basically calls uh, Britain and America UNRWA's real parents. Um, so what UNRWA had to do was once the military had gathered these people um, into transit centres, they then sorted them into camps, so displaced persons camps. Um, this uh, very quickly turned into sorting them by nationality or perceived nationality as they realised that there was a lot of infighting happening between various nationalities. I mean, for instance, if you are Polish and Jewish, does that mean you go into a Jewish displaced persons camp or a Polish one? Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the DPs themselves weren't given the choice. The UNRWA staff just decided for them. So that was problematic. Um, but it was up to UNRWA to really repatriate all these people. So they were meant to end in 1946, but they ended up going until 1947, purely because of the amount of issues they had with repatriating people back to their home countries. I've got to say, um, I came across some absolutely incredible photographs uh, done by UNRWA of these displaced people throughout Europe. And there's, what's the name of the photographer, uh, the really famous one that uh, went around Poland and Europe and took all those photographs? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I know who you mean, because <laughs> they also did a lot of photographs for the JDC as well, the, the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Um, but I've forgotten. Sorry. No, that's fine. He's uh, If anybody wants to throw that in for us, or else have a look yeah. at Google. <laughs> it. Um, he's, his photographs are absolutely incredible. And you see young people, youths, um, soldiers, all sorts of people traveling mm. through being... Uh, repatriated or uh, food for example arriving in Gdańsk at the port it's it's actually yeah. really interesting and yeah. weirdly artistically beautiful it is because it's that it's the complete contrast a lot of the time of the people who although they look disheveled you can tell there's a certain sort of brightness to a lot of them um, and then in the background you've just got sheer destruction most of the time as well it's that quite unique true. Very, very true. Right, so you mentioned just moments mm. ago before I decided to go on my little rant, um, mm. people being put into, for example, if you're Polish-Jewish, where would you go? Yeah. So this is quite important. So who was actually considered Polish in 1945? Oh, this is this is a question that is fraught with many uh, <laughs> issues. Um, so we like issues. We like issues. Give us some <laughs> issues. Well, I mean, apart from anything else, the people who were working for UNRWA, as I said, like a lot of them were American and British, but you know, there were, there were people from various nationalities. Um, but the American and British in particular did not understand the geography of Central or East Central Europe at all. Um, so they didn't understand how like a Latvian would be different from a Lithuanian or why it would matter, for instance. Um, so... What happened at the end of the war is uh, the Allies sanctioned Stalin to, well, sanctioned Stalin's want to change Poland's borders, which is the borders that we have for Poland today. So essentially, the easiest way I always describe it is Poland got lifted up and moved 150 miles west and then kind of plonked back down again. So all the Poles who were from eastern Poland, east of the river Bug, were all of a sudden either going to be made Soviet citizens or they had to move. Um and they ended up, a lot of them ended up going to what is now, I guess, Western Poland, used to be Eastern Germany, to what is called the Recovered Territories, or what was labelled the Recovered Territories. But the people in the camps not only didn't, like a lot of them didn't know this was happening, but then they didn't know how to navigate whether or not those who 
if they were to be repatriated, would originally have gone back to east of the River Bug that was now Soviet territory, whether or not to just allow them to stay in the camps because that would put them in danger, or to class them as Soviets. Because the Soviet displaced persons were the only ones that had, at least for the first six months after the end of the war, around six months, had to be forcibly repatriated. And that was another deal, essentially, that uh, Roosevelt and Churchill signed with Stalin. The priority was to be given to Soviet displaced persons and Western displaced persons. So Western displaced persons, because let's just face it, they just they wanted to prioritise Western um, peoples, and most of them were prisoners of war. So it would be like Dutch people, French people, British people, but then also Soviet displaced persons, because the Soviets, according to them, officially they had no displaced persons. They were just all what? Yeah, They're officially. So UNRWA never really never worked in the Soviet zone. Because um, it wasn't allowed, because they didn't accept that they had a displaced person problem, even though there was about 2.2 million. So, um, I, I, I don't know how to exactly react to that, because you know, Soviet prisoners of war was was so, so. Hold on, they they didn't acknowledge their Soviet prisoners of war. This is insane. They acknowledged that they were Soviet citizens and that they wanted to repatriate them, but they wouldn't. They refused to call them displaced persons. Because DPs was a, a term that was linked explicitly to United Nations um, subjects, essentially. So they refused to allow Soviets to be accepted under that umbrella term, essentially, because then it would mean that they could stay in UNRWA camps and not repatriate. So oh, at the beginning of the war, the British and the Americans actually helped forcibly repatriate Soviets. And because of the border changes, it was very questionable as to whether or not they were Soviets. So some of them most likely were Poles. Yeah, yeah, there would have been, um, I think most of them managed eventually, after much complaining from what I can tell, to get it across to the, these welfare workers working for UNRWA that they're not Soviets, they've never been Soviets, they're Poles, they just happen to have once lived east of the River Bug and now have no home to go back to. So they had the choice of staying in the camps, trying to resettle elsewhere, or go back to what Poland now deems the recovered territories, which is modern-day Western Poland. So I've got another another sub question to throw at you for this subject. Sure. What about Ukrainians and Soviets that tried to pass themselves off as Poles? Did that happen? Oh yeah, yeah, that happened quite a lot. Um, so Baltic peoples within the camps kind of got, very quickly got issued the the sort of label of stateless. Um, so they were allowed to basically stay in the camps and resettle elsewhere because it was it was basically considered that they didn't have a home to return to. However, Ukrainians, it was a bit more contentious. And a lot of the time you would get some um, Polish DPs. I mean, you wouldn't really get a Polish DP trying to act like a Ukrainian, but you would get Ukrainians trying to pass themselves off as Polish DPs. And this was normally accepted because unless you had a Polish liaison officer, which was someone who was meant to help you repatriate, um, how are they going to know the difference between Ukrainian and Polish if they can't even work out the geography of East Central Europe? I'm sorry so, to laugh. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. It's but true though. Like, <laughs> but nowadays most most Westerners can't tell the difference between a Russian, a Pole, a Ukrainian, uh, a Croatian. Uh, of course, yeah. A Latvian, a Lithuanian. It's just. To be so honest, imagine that in 1945. <laughs> I, I don't think it's changed very much, to be honest. No, I have this like this really. I have a, a huge um, amount of documents from this one welfare worker that I focus on quite a lot, called Rhoda Dawson, and 
in her like training manual book that like so you know her like scrap notes from when she got training for UNRWA there's an entire page uh, just and it's titled Polish language training and it's literally just like the extra vowels and letters of the alphabet that you wouldn't find in English and then the phonetic pronunciation and then there's a tiny little side note saying something like this was useless when I got into the camps because mm-hmm. like that was the only Polish language training she was given how to pronounce like the on and the ow sort of sounds um but that was it <laughs> like there's no sort of like idea about there could be dialects as well they didn't necessarily understand that they didn't understand that you could have polish speakers with weird accents which to poles would be you know it's a polish speaker but they've got a ukrainian accent but how are you meant to tell that if you're you know from cheshire or <laughs> i don't understand why they didn't hire um more polish liaisons that would just well, make more sense see this is the thing so they did have Maybe, I don't know, in the British zone of occupation, I think there was about 140 Polish liaison officers. But one of the major things was when the camp started in like April, May 1945, the Polish government in exile that had left Poland in 1939 that ended up in London was still technically in charge of Poland. And then, you know, by July, that wasn't the case. It was now the Polish provisional government of national unity that was basically a Soviet-backed government based in Warsaw and all the Polish liaison officers had been put into their posts before the change in government so they were all loyal to the London government in exile ah okay I can see the problem I can see the problem yeah so it's not like they would encourage repatriation either because to them they're not like they're not encouraging repatriation to a Poland they view as the right Poland I want to know a bit more about life um, in these displacement camps because you know, you have this idea in your mind that it was all hunky-dory. And I've had snippets from my uh, grandparents about what mm. life was like. I mean, obviously, it's not evidence we can use in, in any books or articles, but it's just nice to have a better overview of what it was like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if, like, it's very hard to get a sense of exactly what it was like. I've, I've read a lot of welfare workers' um, diaries and memoirs and have now got wonderful access to some oral history archives that have just um, been brought to my attention that talked about what life was like in the camps. So I think it was very subjective. Um, for a lot of people, though, it was problematic in the sense that sometimes if you were in a concentration camp, the concentration camp turned into a displaced persons camp. Yeah. So the space, the literal space didn't change. And the only thing that changed was that instead of Germans um, basically controlling the camp, it was Americans or British. And when the Americans or British first got there, because everything was so chaotic, they instituted like permit systems. They also had rationing of calories. So you have a lot, I found a lot of letters from different polls basically talking about how, um, you know, necessary. the masters have changed, but nothing else has. Everything's still really grim. We're not allowed to go back home. And that's because this halt on repatriation, uh, awaiting all the Soviets and Western DPs to go away, basically, um, had stopped Poles being able to repatriate. But they also weren't allowed to really leave the camps. They had to have permits to do that. And so for a lot of them, it was very grim because it was kind of like you've been told that you've got freedom now because the war is over. But at the same time, in reality, you don't. People need to know where you are so that you could be repatriated should that time arise. But no one knew when that would be. So it was just this constant like longing for like an end point, essentially, that was just never there. Um, so, yeah, I don't get the sense that they were particularly pleasant places um, to go to. There was a, a very 
big um, sort of document that was put together in 19, the end of 45 or the beginning of 46. It was commissioned by the Americans and they sent this guy over called Il G. Harrison to do a survey of some camps and the things that he reported back was just horrendous. Like there was still barbed wires. Um, there was still like partially constructed walls that would be, you know, the sides of your room. A lot of places were just very big sort of barracks and they used blankets to kind of divide everything into cubicles just so you could have like a tiny bit of privacy. Um, but I get a sense that it was a very much like, especially in the British zone, it was very much like a make do sort of situation because unfortunately, you know, the allies had just bombed the crap out of it. So sorry, bombed it. <laughs> no, no, we can, um, it's fine. Don't worry. You can swear on our podcast. <laughs> That's not a problem. Just checking. Um, but we, we, you know, we'd bombed the hell out of it. So like there wasn't enough accommodation for the Germans themselves, let alone, you know, the millions of displaced persons that now had to be housed there, along with all the British military and UNRWA workers who were then getting brought in. And of course, the British military and UNRWA workers took the nicer digs because they were there looking after the other ones. And they just kind of said, well, you know, you've got, you're going to live in an old SS barracks and that's just how it's going to be. So I, I don't think they were very cheery places. <laughs> Do you know, it's, uh, I can now see why my grandparents didn't really talk about it. I mean, all of that I got out of them, uh, were two things. My, uh, my grandmother started up a Girl Scout movement. From, oh, cool. Uh, former, obviously other women that were there that were Girl Scouts in like the Warsaw Uprising or ended up being deported to labor camps or concentration camps or whatever the issue was. So they had their own, you know, uh, platoons and they would have their meetings and, and mm. things like that. But I, I do actually have a positive story out of this. I'm just going to throw this out there <laughs> because my grandparents met at a displacement camp. Oh. And um, that's where they fell in love. Yeah, I've, I've come across quite a few stories like that. It's really sweet. Um, this, Yeah. I mean, I say the dis like physically displaced persons camps were grim. However, there was a lot of very instantaneously, especially amongst the Polish community, there was a, a real surge in like in a very defiant way of like you tried to squash out our identity and our nationality so we're going to throw it in your faces sort of thing so like there was a lot of like celebrations that happened immediately and um, there was a lot of attention paid to like making sort of makeshift chapels and um, there was mass weddings like you would have a hundred people getting married at the same time um so there was a there were some really nice things but the problem was in the british zone is the british by like mid 46 basically said well, this is stopping them repatriating because they're just having too much of a nice time. And they started putting uh, policies into place that would mean that any camp with over 100 Polish displaced persons, and there was many of those, wasn't allowed to have any recreational activities to try and dissuade them from staying. Sorry, uh, sorry what? Yeah. 1st of October 1946, they, they instituted a policy where if, if a camp had more than 100 Polish displaced persons, all recreational activities had to stop. So that included things like, there was quite a few people who would put together orchestras or theatre companies, um, and they just, they would get split up, moved camps, and then they would try and form them again. They would get split up again and moved camps until it got to the point, they were basically trying to make them as apathetic as possible to the point that they would just repatriate. It's serious. But it's thing. absurd. I know, it, it is absolutely absurd. Um, and it was basically down to the fact that, I mean... I'm, I'm being very reductionist here, but when Polish DPs got to the British zone in particular, they expected to be welcomed as kind of like brothers in arms because a, a large proportion of the army had fought alongside the British. Um, Britain was ostensibly had declared war for Poland 
1939. Um, and they saw that as a brothers in arms thing, where, to be quite honest, from the British side of things, they were just doing it to make sure that the territorial integrity of East Central Europe wasn't destroyed again. Um, so when they got into the camps, they kind of expected this camaraderie that just wasn't there. And it sounds horrible, but like, you know, at the end of the war, you've got the military running these camps and they're just quite frankly knackered. And the last thing they want is people who are staying in these camps. They want everyone to be repatriated, but they're not taking the time to understand why going back to Poland would be a problem. They're just kind of like, you know, our job is to get you back. So we're just going to try and get you back by any means. So yeah, the banning on recreational activities. So they did have them, but after 1st of October 46, they were banned. So this was just that, the British zone. Sorry to throw this in, because I'm just going to throw another one in. I mean, we, we, we're, on, we're, on, no, no, we're on the subject, so we might as well push this subject a little bit more. Um, so obviously the British don't want to understand why the Poles don't want to go back. But how did they treat the Poles? I mean, obviously there was no camaraderie, but was there any hatred or... Um, bad behaviour or good behaviour? Yeah, I mean, well, this is a very, like, I'm giving a very blanketed sort of, like, thing here. I'm not saying that not, I'm not saying that no one in the camps wanted to understand, like, the welfare workers and stuff. Some of them did eventually when they started realising, like, you've got a lot of these um, welfare workers talking about how at first all these people were just statistics and numbers, and then the longer they stayed in the camps, like, the more they got used to faces and names, and then the names and faces became friends. Um, and it was only when they became friends that they started actually trying to learn from people why it would be problematic to go back to Poland. But obviously not everyone would stay in certain camps for long enough to even understand this. So you did have this kind of like everyone was so overburdened with the amount of work that they had to do and do it in a short space of time that they never actually paid attention to what the core problem or what one of the, one of the core problems was. So I don't want to like... I mean, I'm not, like, <laughs> in my thesis, I did, um, I was maybe a little bit uh, morally judgmental of the way that the British treated uh, the Poles, mainly because, from my point of view today, it just seemed really callous. But trying to put myself in their position, it, I can understand how they were totally burnt out at this point. Um, but, yeah, so there is, however, especially in military um, communications, so, like, foreign office and war office communications, there is a lot of back and forth calling particularly Polish displaced persons um, troublesome or a nuisance or um, the sludge that remains in the camps, I think was one quote. So it's it's kind of like devaluing them. Like they're, they're seen as this troublesome nuisance. And that was literally the title of my thesis. Um, they're seen as a troublesome nuisance in the camps because they're basically just, they're not being good displaced persons. So a good displaced person would be someone who does what the Allies want them to do and do it when they want them to do it. Whereas a bad one is someone who causes issues. And this was generally applied to most, to predominantly Slavic people. Um, and that was, I think, down to the ignorance of the Americans and the British in particular to just not understand what was actually happening. A but. good displaced person. I love that. I just, it's like yeah, saying a, a, a good concentration camp inmate does as he's told. I, I mean, yeah. that's exactly the same way. It is, yeah. Like the official uh, historian for UNRWA, this guy called George Woodbridge, um, he actually says it in his, because he's got like a three volume work on UNRWA that he published in 1950. And he actually details. You know, the military only saw displaced persons as good and bad. A good one does what they want, essentially, and a bad one doesn't. So even at the time, they realised that this was quite problematic. Black and white thinking, really. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just like, it's very similar to uh, debates that go on about refugees today um, and asylum seekers. Like a refugee is someone who is grateful for absolutely everything that the host society does and doesn't question anything. A bad refugee is someone who's like, well, actually, this isn't enough. Or I need something else because, you know, I've got a particular illness and people just, the, the first thing they do is just go instantly to this label of ungrateful. Yeah. When, without any sort of like trying to understand where that person's coming from. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay. Uh, every operation has a quirky name. This one has a very odd one. Um, talk us through Operation Carrot. Oh, so Operation Carrot is one of those things that's like Marmite to me. Like, I absolutely love it because it's so ridiculous, but I hate it because of it's, like, it's just horrendous. So Operation Carrot was created by UNRWA, um, and the leader of UNRWA at the time, the director, was Fiorello Lagardia, the guy, the guy who used to be mayor of New York. Um, and he basically realized that there was a large problem with the amount of Polish displaced persons particularly in the American and British zones by April 1946, I think it was. So he decided he was going to put an operation into effect to try and encourage repatriation. And he called it Operation Carrot, uh, which is very sinister, given that the operation was to actually offer displaced persons extra food rations to encourage them to repatriate. So if you chose to repatriate, you would get 60 days worth of food rations. Um, which to people who for, you know, the best part of it, like six, seven years had not had very good calorie intake, um, or been, you know, nourished in any sort of way, 60 days worth of food is insane. So it was essentially like a lot of unraw welfare workers called it a bribe. And I think that's exactly what it was. Um, they also put displays of what 60 days worth of food rations would look like, um, on in camps and then ordered people to walk past them. So they could see just how much food they would get. I'm sorry. I'm just it's like, yeah, move on. You can get all of this food. <laughs> yeah. They put on a display for a single person, which was like 90 pounds worth of food. And then they put on a display for like a family of four to, so you could see how much you would get. And it was like 370 something pounds worth of food. Yeah. And then they ordered all the Polish DPs to walk past them one by one so they could see just what they were missing out on if they didn't return home. <laughs> I just I'm actually oh. speechless to, to to some of the things that are coming out of this podcast today, <laughs> like marching yeah. people past food. I mean, 
where are we in a concentration, even in a in prisoner of war camp, pick one of the camps that these people have left and they're yeah. pretty much, not exact, exactly because, you know, obviously you don't have the fear and the terror, but these people yeah. have been conditioned into this sort of um, mindset and they're yeah. now being, te- yeah. I mean, I never came across anything like uh, written by Polish DPs or welfare workers that said that there was any ever any sort of physical abuse in the camps um, from, well, I mean, there might have been the odd person or something, but I don't, I haven't come across it. But there, it was a lot of psychological warfare, essentially. Uh, one welfare worker talked about how uh, in the bag of flour, I think at the end of the table, there was just loads of handfuls missing. So people were walking past this display and looking at it and then getting to the end and being like pocketing some flour just because they needed to get something out of it, <laughs> essentially. Um, it did It did initially have some success. I think like seventeen or 18,000 people uh, took up the offer. But then it was quite quick after the first month of it being successful that news from Poland of people who, who chose to return um, under Operation Carrot weren't actually getting their food parcels. Ah, okay. Yeah, and that news filtered back into the camps. So anyone who was then thinking of doing it immediately decided not to. And this is insane in many ways because, especially in the British zone of occupation, food was a real problem in 1946. Not just for the displaced persons camps, but um, the British home front, that's when bread rationing started because we were struggling with food quite a bit. And we were also in charge of feeding the Germans. And the Germans at this point, uh, from what I can tell uh, from the contemporary sources, thought that, you know, the British were purposefully starving them um, into submission because they were providing so little foodstuffs. And then here we have UNRWA being like, we're going to basically bait you into going home with food. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> speechless. I'm speechless. So I'm, I'm assuming after hearing this information... Uh, that some Poles tried to come back. I mean, when they got to Poland, obviously you have a whole different regime. So you've gone yeah. from one occupier to literally another. Um, and I'm assuming some didn't want to stay. I mean, did they come back to the Allied zones? Um, some of them did. It's very hard to try and find official documentation, like, you know, uh, in, you know, foreign office memos and stuff actually talking about this. It's very few and far between. But there, there were definitely accounts of people coming back, like in welfare workers' diaries and stuff. But the problem was that they then weren't accepted back into the displaced persons camps because a displaced person, according to the United Nations like official definition, had been displaced by reasons of war or by force. So if they'd taken you back to Poland and you'd chosen willingly, um, I'm doing like little finger quotation marks here, to return to the British zone of occupation, for instance, you're no longer a displaced person because you've displaced yourself. So what would happen to these people? It's That's up to them. Um, from what I can tell, they, they had to either just... I think they just had to like make do within German society, so they act, it actually put them in a worse position because then they were without like official help and in a hostile sort of host society. Sometimes they would ship them back to Poland again. Like if there was a transport train going and there was space, they would allow them to hop on board. Um, but a lot of the time they just kind of went, well, you've displaced yourself. You're, you're your own problem now. God, it's like a catch-22 situation. Yeah. Do yeah. you, don't you? What would happen if you did? What would happen if you don't? 
Yeah, it was a, it was a very like final sort of decision. If you did decide to return to Poland, it was kind of like understood that 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 is your decision. That's it. Which is why so many hung on in the camps as long as they did, because they just wanted they didn't want to stay in Germany. Most of them anyway. They didn't want to go back to Poland, so they were just kind of sitting there waiting for some sort of like resettlement opportunity to a different country to open up. So I'm going to throw a question in here that you, if you don't know, don't know the answer, we can cut it out. So I'll <laughs> um, what about Poles getting into England? How did that happen? Um, so England, so the first ever large piece of resettlement uh, policy that was ever put into place in England was the Polish Resettlement Act of 1947. But that was specifically for those who had served in the army and their dependents. So if you are just an ordinary Polish person who had been a forced labourer in Germany, for instance, and you're in a displaced persons camp, you had no hope of resettling in Britain based on that act because it was just for the military. So it was about 150,000 Poles on that act ended up in Britain. Um, and then, because uh, we're going to go back into strange operation names, in 1946, uh, Britain realised it had a labour shortage and it needed to recruit people. So the first thing it did was go to these displaced persons camps. And they called it Operation Westward Ho. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I forgot to mention, actually, the, the operation to get the dependence of soldiers to Britain was called Operation Pole Jump as well. Yeah. Um, I, think, um, I think my granddad was part of that operation because yeah. um, my, uh, my great-granddad, the, the general, was in Poland at the time because mm-hmm. he spent most of the war um, after Dunkirk he ended up in Britain. So I'm assuming my, my grandfather and my grandmother, who they were they were fiancés by that point, and yeah. they ended up they ended up in Poland because of that reason. In England. Yeah. England, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah that's the one. <laughs> that, that would have, that would have been Operation Pole Jump, yeah. <laughs> so oh, I know sorry. Operation Westwood Ho, so they like the quota was something like sixty to 100,000 DPs, and they thought that they wouldn't struggle whatsoever trying to get these people to come over. Um, but the problem was, when they went into the camps, they specifically said that they wanted Ukrainian and Baltic DPs only. Why? Um, to quote the Royal... I can't remember what it's called now. The Royal Population Survey, or something like that. Um, but basically, uh, Baltic and Ukrainian DPs were, and I quote, of good human stock, end quote. Ah. Ah, so, so because they were basically paler, taller, blonder. Um, so a very racial eugenics thing going on there. Ah. And then eventually when they realised that they couldn't get anywhere near that quota, uh, they accepted Poles, Yugoslavs, um, and a few others. So, I mean, That's the first operation before Westwood Ho was something called Operation Bolt Signet. So a signet is a young, beautiful swan. So basically what they were trying to do was get women between the ages of like 18 and 30. <laughs> well, I was not, I was, I was kind of hoping you weren't going to say something like that. Yeah, no. And they wanted them as nurses as well, which was the main thing, like carers and nurses. Um, oh, so it was wow. Operation Bolt Signet then turned into Operation Westwood Ho, which was part of a wider European volunteer workers scheme that they, well, they labelled it that anyway, the EVW scheme. Um. Yeah, and we I think they ended up with about 13,000 Poles in Britain on that basis from Westwood Ho. And they were, like, the whole point of uh, the EVW scheme, for Britain it, uh, at least, was to work your way towards a British citizenship. So it was actually a permanent resettlement opportunity. 
Whereas other European countries, sometimes it was just like a one or two year contract. Yeah. And then after that, it was kind of like, who knows? Sam, listen, this has been so apps what really insightful because I've learned so much about the various different aspects through uh, Polish displaced people and repatriation and yeah. conditions. <laughs> and it's I, I'm really looking forward to this book actually because I want to know a bit more, uh, especially about some of the other zones that were that were um, repatriating yeah. people. But do remind our listeners, where can they get your article if they want to know more? It is European History Quarterly, and it is open access, so download it as many times as you want. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's all about repatriation uh, from the British zone of occupation in particular. And I'll just plug this a little bit as well, but I do have two books that will be coming out within the next couple of years. One of them is on um, just Polish displaced persons in general in the British zone of occupation and international organisations, so we're looking a lot more at UNRWA. And the other one is literally on UNRWA and it's an edited volume with uh, 10 other scholars that focuses on what rehabilitation was ever meant to mean. Fabulous. When they come out, please feel free to join us back on the podcast to do a bit more chatting. About I shall, this. I shall. Amazing. Thank you so much. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there, and we have our own channel, and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes, because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.